0: Welcome to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and today's show is brought to you by AARP and Masterworks. We've got a great show today about a historical sea change event that impacts all of us to this day. We're talking about healthcare with author Olivia Campbell. Olivia Campbell is author of the nonfiction book Women in White Coats How the First Women Doctors Changed the World of Medicine. Women in White Coats takes us back to the early 1800s before there were any women doctors. It was a time when women were dying from treatable diseases. Dying because they avoided medical demeaning and painful examinations that were really always only given by male doctors. It sounds unbelievable, but a diagnosis of illness for a woman held quite a stigma. A stigma that could hinder her ability to marry, work, or be received in polite society. Enter Elizabeth Blackwell, Lizzie Garrett Anderson, and Sophie Jex Blake. Yes, these three women who fought for a women's place in this male-dominated medical field will teach all of us and introduce us to the incredible stories that led the way. Three very different women, different in personality and circumstances. How did they create the first medical care for women by women? Based on extensive research, Olivia Campbell tells their compelling and courageous stories. And we'll hear that in Olivia Campbell's stirring reading from her new book now.
1: When medicine began to be solidified as a profession during the 13th century, his practice now requiring university training and licensure, patriarchal control swept in women could not become official doctors since most universities wouldn't admit them. Outside of England and France, some institutions were more amenable. In 1390, Italian physician Dorothea Bucca took over for her father as chair of medicine at the University of Bologna, a post she held for more than 40 years. Still, such women were the exceptions, not the rule. Professionalization further sidelined women because it because book learning was now viewed as superior to any wisdom passed down orally, like most of women's folk medicine was. Women's claims of medical prowess began to be questioned in real time, not by history scholars, but by the women's newly professionalized male contemporaries. Lay women healers were vilified as dangerously incompetent because they lacked a classical education, which they couldn't obtain even if they wanted to. In 1421, English physicians petitioned Parliament and King Henry V to request that no women practice medicine under pain of long imprisonment and steep fines, declaring those who tried worthless and presumptuous women who usurped the profession. Women who were found guilty of practicing medicine illegally were excommunicated and fined. Things took a deadly turn when the church stepped in. The church controlled most university medical schools and wanted to ensure that they also monopolized its practice. Between 1400 and 1700, the Catholic and Lutheran churches executed a massive campaign to rid Europe of wise women, branding them witches or sorceresses, even the nuns. They reasoned that only through God could a person be healed, and since women were ordained by him to wield such powers, their ability to make sick people well must originate from the devil. While well, the church claimed it was fighting dark magic, not medicine or women. Their campaign saw more than 100,000 women healers burned at the stake. This legacy of discrimination against women healers cast a wide shadow over the medical profession. Even if women did somehow manage to achieve professional qualifications, they were relegated to specialties deemed feminine. They could deliver health care, but only as nurses or midwives. For Victorian women like Elizabeth Blackwell, Lizzie Garrett, and Sophia Jacks blake to seek entrance into the male realm of medicine was a radical request to be seen as equals. It meant these women couldn't just be students, they also had to be women's rights activists. If they wished to fully re-enter the realm of medicine as doctors, they'd have to put up a hell of a fight. Each woman's journey to a medical degree would vary. Each was driven by vastly different motivations. One sought a degree in Scotland with disastrous results. One was forced to travel to France for her degree. One's college application was considered a practical joke. Each would grapple with defining women's work and purpose as sister, wife, mother, daughter, adoptive mother, single parent, lesbian partner. But even in those early days of their studies, each one recognized their role as trailblazers paving the way for others. They knew their actions would allow future generations of women to forge their own paths, craft their own definitions of what women's work could be. They would never stop fighting, because they saw how women physicians could revolutionize medicine, not just for the benefit of female patients, but for everyone. History would be made by these medical women.
0: That, of course, is our guest today, Olivia Campbell, reading from her new book, Women in White Coats, How the First Women Doctors Changed the World of Medicine. Join us as we talk to Olivia Campbell about two riots that spark her research and writing these amazing stories, the first medical school for women, why women needed women doctors in the first place, and the effects of the pandemic. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better show on radio and podcast, author Olivia Campbell. Author, journalist, Olivia Campbell, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: It is a pleasure to talk to you. Hope your family is all well through uh, these last couple of years and everybody's, you know, just... Pushing ahead and and keeping up, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit of about healthcare today. But I hope the healthcare in your household is all good too.
1: My son just had a, an emergency appendectomy, so we've been deep in the healthcare this past month. So I'm very thankful for all his amazing nurses and doctors that helped him, and he's on the road to recovery now.
0: Uh, well, my best to you and to him. I uh, I agree with that sentiment, but uh, yeah, please be be well, especially these times. Well. Your book is fantastic, Women in White Coats, How the First Women Doctors Changed the World of Medicine. I, I loved reading this. It's fantastic. It really has gotten an awful lot of acclaim. We're going to talk a little bit about it, but I wonder if you just start by telling us first maybe how you came across this story and what what inspired you to write it?
1: Well, I, I write a lot about women's healthcare care um, and women in history, and I, I read an article about um, a riot that happened uh, near my home in Philadelphia. Um, it was when women decided that they were going to go see a medical lecture. They were finally admitted um, to this co-ed lecture, um, they had been begging for years and years, the women's medical school that they set up, because first of all, you know they weren't allowed to go to the men's medical school. So they had to establish a school of their own in Philadelphia. It was the second in the US. Um, so the women's medical school had finally given, been given permission to attend this lecture where um, cases would be brought in front of the students, right? It was a big auditorium and um, the doctors would bring in surgical cases and other types of cases to show the students um, what a real patient looked like and, and so forth. So news had gotten out about the, the women's presence. Uh, the, the women were planning to come to this lecture. And so the male students had passed around this little note that said, go and see the she doctors tomorrow. So they were planning something. They wanted lots of people there. So when the women arrive, um, there's about 300 men there that, you know, this is normally a sm- much, much smaller uh, lecture. So they gathered hundreds of men. Um, the, the women had to enter the, the lecture hall from the back stairs. Of course, they weren't allowed to enter through the front. <laughs> so they get in and up in the, uh, the stands here are um, 300 men throwing stuff at them, um, spitting on them, throwing tinfoil wads, just screaming at them, uh, yelling epithets, uh, profanities, just the, anything nasty you can think of. They were, they were doing it. Um, so the women refused to be scared away. They had to sit, uh, through this lecture while the men, you know, continued their uproar. They had several administrators and and teachers come in throughout to ask them to stop. Uh, and, you know, the lecture tried to go on. The women, you know, just had to sit and not let it make, you know, they, they couldn't show that anything was going to fluster them. This wasn't going to cut it. They were going to do this, you know, whether the men liked it or not, they were going to be there. So the the men actually chased them out at the end, um, you know, throwing stuff at them up the street. So it it must have been terrifying. But the women said it solidified in their mind the need for women doctors because they couldn't imagine these people, these sorts of people who would do this, um, treating their families, you know, treating their children, their wives and daughters, sisters, that sort of thing. So and then I read about a riot, almost exactly a year later, there was a riot in Edinburgh, Scotland, exactly the same, Um, these women had been attending medical school classes, like, trying, you know, to push their way through, and they had been given permission to enter these classes, and they had to go to a co-ed exam, and so, same deal, this was a, a big topic of conversation, like, it was in the newspapers, like, whether women should be going to medical school or not. And so um, there was a planned riot at this um, exam. The women come up to the building and there's hundreds of men. They're mostly drunk. They're throwing uh, rotten produce at them. (laughs) They're throwing mud on their dresses. Um, You know, they're swearing and screaming at them. And the same thing, the women had to not let it bother them. They had to keep going. And they went into the classroom. The men uh, let a sheep loose in the classroom in the exam. (laughs) And the professor said, you know, let let the sheep out. It has more sense than the men outside do. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I was really intrigued by these identical riots and just for the fact that Women were simply trying to get a medical education and that the men would react this way, you know, in so many different cases. And I I just had to know more. I wanted to know what all these women were going through just to earn a medical degree, just to try to get the same education as men to become a physician.
0: Gosh, we're glad you did. We're glad that this is, has been uh, recorded and written because uh, as I hear you talk, you know, about the she doctors and the riots, the, the drunk men, the rotten produce being tossed at Elizabeth Blackwell, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, Lizzie uh, Anderson and Sophia Jex Blake. These women were really pioneers, but. I can't imagine that they sought this role. I can't imagine that they really wanted to be out in front as rights activists or or did they? And, and was it something they felt that they must do?
1: I think it's different for the different women. I think Elizabeth Blackwell, I got the sense that she definitely liked the attention. I mean, um it definitely got annoying at some point. Like the people, um, when she would walk in the streets in the town where she was attending medical school, you know, the, the ladies would like stop and stare and point and that kind of stuff. I don't think she liked that so much. Um, but I, I, I get the sense that she really did, on some level, appreciate the celebrity status that she had. I think secretly she enjoyed it. Um, she actually was not really aligned with the. Um, women's rights activists working at the time. Uh, she went to school quite near Seneca falls where that stuff was going on. And she, um, she kind of thought they were silly. She, you know, she referred to them as silly women. And uh, I don't know. (laughs) So it's really interesting to go back and see how, um, Women could be fighting for women's rights in one area, and not really, you know, be aligned with women's rights and possibly other areas. Um, so she wanted to show the world that a woman could also be a doctor. Women could be what they wanted to, and could be good at it, right? So it was suggested to her many times that she pretend to be a man and go to medical school in France or or in America, and she said, "No, that's that's not the point. The point is to be a woman getting a medical degree." So. I think she she definitely liked the celebrity a little bit. She felt called. And I think, honestly, it could have been any profession. I think medicine was just something that happened to be suggested to her. So that's what she picked. She just wanted to show what women were capable of uh, and that they were capable of more than what society thought at that time. Now, for for Lizzie and Sophia, um, I don't know that they liked the spotlight so much, Um I feel like Lizzie was more of a private person that her, when she got engaged, there were uh, articles in medical journals talking about whether she could also, you know, could have it all. Basically, you know, we've been discussing this for decades and decades, Um, you know, talking about, oh, could she be a good doctor and be a wife? Could she be a mother and a doctor, you know, cut to her heavily pregnant performing several surgeries a day? You know, this is (laughs) she she kind of. Put up with the the celebrity spotlight, but she was much more involved in the general women's rights movements. She had, you know, was involved in um, gathering signatures for petitions for women's suffrage, that sort of thing. So she was much more highly involved. And Sophia was also in that that women's rights group that she was in. They were both in it together. Um, so there was much more of a traditional push for women's rights from those two uh, living in England than there was from Elizabeth Blackwell living in America. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Um, uh, but I'm, I definitely think that so- Sophia, she's such a complicated character. I think that she put up with the celebrity. I think that she, she could have embraced celebrity more. I think she liked giving speeches and she liked you know, the public aspects of it, but she wasn't really allowed to do that a whole lot because of her personality, because she was kind of an abrasive person. She wasn't put in those... Public positions a lot, but she put herself out there. She was not afraid to speak her mind, you know, at public meetings, um, and say what she wanted to say.
0: Of the three, who was it that captured your attention the most? Who, who did you feel was the most compelling?
1: Well, I feel like Elizabeth Blackwell is definitely the most well known um, in the U.S. And uh, Lizzie Garrett was um, is more of a traditional like. celebrated woman like as someone who we historically like hold up right she was a, a wife and a mother and she kind of fit this ideal of what society likes to celebrate about women right she had a job and she also had kids and she was kind of the quintessential like woman figure but to me the most interesting was the one who's least remembered um at least in America that's Sophia Sophia was you know a little bit younger than all of them she was a lesbian. She didn't care what men thought about her. So that, you know, that freed her up to say whatever she wanted. Um, and she was not scared. And this was not. The kind of person that uh, the movement really wanted (laughs) to be, um, you know, advocating for them. They didn't want her to be the figurehead for the movement, but she, whether they liked it or not, she was. She was the one who was pushing for this to happen right now. The others wanted to go slowly and not step on men's toes. They wanted, you know, change to happen slowly, but they understood that they needed men's support. Well, Sophia. Didn't care she wanted it to happen now and she didn't see why it couldn't uh it was her idea to found this medical school for women in london but yet we remember it as lizzie's school because lizzie took over because sophia was pushed out because she was too abrasive she was too uh emotional and you know I, I had a hard time with this because it's always you don't always know whether maybe she was like an angry emotional you know maybe she was a little bit volatile personality but maybe she wasn't maybe she was just not acting like a woman should act according to victorian you know mores. So maybe she was just you know perfectly fine as a modern woman but maybe it wasn't wasn't okay for that or maybe she really was angry i, I don't know so I, I feel like she is really the one who is deserves a lot more attention than she, that she currently is given.
0: Who was the one that was most difficult to research? Because one really had lost a lot of their papers and a lot of you know recorded information was missing.
1: Right. Sophia, um, her partner wrote a biography of her. Um, and then after Sophia passed away, her partner wrote a biography which included a lot of her letters and papers. But after that, they were destroyed because Sophia had requested that upon her death, her papers be destroyed, which, you know, that's how you got privacy from (laughs) from prying eyes of historians, right? Maybe there was things she didn't want us to know. And that's another thing. Like I'm reading these women's diaries and letters and like, I wonder if they ever could have conceived the fact that someone hundreds of years later reading, these things that they wrote, you know, and I I, I kind of understand Sophia's interest in not wanting that to ever be a possibility, you know? So all we have is what her partner saved uh, in this biography of her and what Sophia wrote herself. Luckily, Sophia was, uh, did a lot of writing herself. So she has um, essays she published. Um, she has, you know, all, all throughout she taught, she's written about her experience of trying to go to medical school and um, and some of the other women that she encouraged to come along, they also had papers that I found. But, yeah, basically when I went into the archive and looked her up, there, there's like nothing there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the others were a lot easier. There was, you know, letters upon letters to, to look at. And it was so electrifying to go into the archives and touch these letters that these women had handwritten. And, you know, it was just connecting over the course of history. It was, it was really cool.
0: I want to talk for just a moment about our sponsor, AARP, and welcome them to the show. You know, I love hosting The Not Old Better Show, and now, for over six years, especially through the last two years, I feel very young at heart doing this alongside you all. And many of us in The Not Old Better Show audience, those of us over age 50, are facing issues together like affordable health care, lower prescription costs, and protecting Social Security and Medicare. Yes, AARP does all that and more for members. But importantly, as we age, AARP advocates for you and offers financial and job resources, fraud protection help, information on joining local volunteer groups. AARP is the largest advocacy group for people 50 plus. As an AARP member myself, I know how important their advocacy is. I'm in business for myself, as is my wife, millions of us over the age 50 are in business for ourselves today. And AARP has a great member resource for building workplace and entrepreneurial skills on their aarp.org website. If you're looking for a job, the job board at aarp.org is deep, well-connected, and an amazing benefit. Did you think that AARP was just for old people? No way. Have you rethought your definition of being old? Absolutely. All these membership benefits come at very little cost. Again, yes, as an AARP member, you get access to wonderful discount programs. Personally, Gretchen and I use AARP's vision plan for exams, contacts, all the benefits you want, but the financial and job resources, the advocacy, and self paced classes certificate programs and other marketable skills from mind edge learning are the benefits you need because aarp knows you have a lot of good years ahead try the benefits for yourself go to aarp.org nob to join for just twelve dollars for your first year with automatic renewal you'll get a second membership for free plus aarp the magazine and a free gift that's aarp.org slash n-o-b all of this is going to be in the show notes hey it's paul i want to talk to you about something i know you're thinking about already even though you might not want to say it out loud and often it can make for some awkward conversations you don't always bring it up with your kids or your friends but it is always on your mind i'm talking about money I'm not sure what you were thinking about there, but I'm here to tell you about this exciting way to make more money work harder and smarter for you thanks to our friends at Masterworks. I've talked about Masterworks before and they are the investment platform valued at over a billion dollars. They let anyone invest in blue chip art. Over 350,000 members have already signed up, and now so can you. Masterworks gives you unprecedented access to the same art that the ultra-wealthy have been buying for generations. In fact, they've securitized over $400 million worth of art. And I want you all to see this revolutionary platform for yourselves. It's a game-changer, for sure. You can skip the waitlist and get priority access at Masterworks Dot io using the promo code NOB. That's masterworks.io. Use the promo code NOB. Please see important disclosures at masterworks.io slash C D. All of this will be in our show notes today. Thanks everybody. We are with author journalist Olivia Campbell. Olivia Campbell writes about medicine and women, has written the new book, Women in White Coats. How the First Women Doctors Changed the World of Medicine. The book is getting great reviews. Nina Sankovic, a best-selling author, says, A fascinating, absorbing, and inspiring account. These women realized their dreams and changed the world. The book is fantastic. The research is wonderful, too. We're going to put up uh, links for our audience to find out more information about author Olivia Campbell. You can find Olivia Campbell on Twitter at at Campbell. That'll be in the show notes today. But Olivia Campbell, I wonder... If we can talk for a second about what was it that was going on in the Victorian era at, at the time of these women that led them to really kind of state women's health just isn't very healthy, that hospitals were being built for women, that medical care was really almost inhumane. What what was it that was happening around this time? Well,
1: almost all of these early women physicians went into the profession because they had An experience themselves or a relative, a female relative, um, a mother, a friend, a sister, either have a terrible experience with a physician or, um, you know, they watch them have too many pregnancies. Uh, They watch them have a terrible childbirth experience because of an inexperienced male doctor. They watch them have, you know, described having, being in more pain from going to the doctor than, than not, uh, and just not being able to talk to, to male doctors about everything that they wanted to talk about, you know, during this time, it was, you know, wasn't considered kosher or it wasn't considered okay for, uh, men to look directly at women during a pelvic exam, you know, they would just kind of feel around. And <laughs> some you could graduate from medical school as a man and, and never have been to an actual birth. So you could be appearing as a professional doctor at your first, you know, childbirth and, and have no idea what's going on. So I, I just, I can't imagine the, you know, those friends of those women hearing those stories of <laughs> this man coming and having no idea what's going on, how traumatic that was for, probably for the man. And for the, of course, for the, the mother, um, just, just, terrible stories about um, you know, losing children young and wishing there was better care for women and children. Um, and that's what I really connected with with these women. I had a difficult first childbirth. I had a terrible postpartum depression. And to hear uh, some of these first women doctors talk about how they chose to go into this profession after an experience like that, I really felt a real kinship with them and a connection uh, with their stories.
0: Yeah. I, I really got that. I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, that balance of the um, you know talking about the the three women Elizabeth Blackwell Lizzie uh, Anderson and Sophia Jex Blake I thought that was fascinating but the the history part of it really struck me as interesting too and you you refer to this just a moment ago in in, in one of your answers about uh, medical school really amounting to a little more than an undergrad degree and then a brief internship and men really not even witnessing a birth and and making their way into medical practice what else did you learn in your research about uh, medical school and medicine from that period.
1: I was so shocked to to read about how short uh, yeah. <laughs> medical Gosh, school was. And I mean, change. honestly, when you think about it, there how much was there to learn? Though how far was medicine along? Like, I guess that's that's all you all the time you needed to learn as much as there was at that time. Yes. yes. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to medicine. I was I was so surprised that medicine was not really the uh, you know lauded uh, respected profession that it is today um it was kind of what you did if you weren't going to become a priest or you know um if you weren't going to head a church or be a lawyer like you maybe like you would go be a doctor i guess like that was for the kind of rough-and-tumble people that didn't have other things to do (laughs) so it was a really rough crowd at these medical schools you know these these were not the top of the line people and it's no wonder women were suffering under their hands as physicians because these were you know (laughs) these were kind of the the outcasts of the family they're trying to find something to to do to make money (laughs) at the time um i mean it's definitely uh, more rigorous education going on in Europe for sure. Um, and what's interesting to me is that because these women were rejected almost uniformly in America, um, that they had to then go to Europe for further education or any education at all. Almost all of these women, if they pieced together a degree, they would then go to France. They then went to Germany. And these were the places uh, Switzerland was another one, um, those were the countries where, you know, medicine was exploding at the time. Medicine is, is moving forward at a pace where that England and America really couldn't imagine at this time. So because they were, you know, because of prejudice and pushing them to places that were more advanced, they went, brought that back to America, to England. They brought back, the you know, the tools. And I believe it was um, one of Elizabeth Blackwell's contemporaries who worked with her uh, marie she moved from new york with elizabeth to boston and um was asking one of the directors of the hospital like for all these tools that she had used before and, and the guy's like we're not going to use all those newfangled european instruments what are you talking about like <laughs> they, they were trying to really push things forward in the u.s and they were you know hitting walls of course but these women were some of the first to to do antisepsis in america they were the first to um do prenatal care and um oh, like there's a huge laundry list of things that women doctors were the first to implement in the U.S. and England so it's it's crazy to me that because they were rejected because of the prejudice against them they had to go off and, and learn even better ways
0: we're with Olivia Campbell. Olivia Campbell is author of the new book, Women in White Coats, How the First Women Doctors Changed the World of Medicine. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for reading uh, your um, uh, a section of the book today. We, we always really value it. that We just really value that. I just have one final question for you. The story, again, is wonderful. I'm just going to highly recommend this to uh, my audience. It was not an easy battle for these first women doctors. Um, Some of them, it took them years to meet their goals. Women today still face obstacles and hurdles. But I thought this was an amazing quote in the book. You say, in 2017, for the first time ever in the U.S., there were more women medical students than men. Amazing. What do you hope that my audience will take away from the book?
1: Well, The the biggest thing that I've been saying that I want people to take away from the book is that sexism has never been okay as long as there have been people being sexist there have been people saying this is not how it should be this is not okay why is it like this um so to kind of it's insulting to to the, our ancestors to say that it was ever okay you know that they they weren't coming out and saying absolutely not this is not how things should be um so it's uh, saying that thing it, it used to be okay to be sexist it is not really the truth is not the whole truth um and i am really i'm glad to see so many more women in medicine today and i really hope the problem for me is that sexism in medicine is still here it's definitely come a long way for sure women are allowed into medical school right women are allowed into all different specialties Um, but at the same time women are still less represented in certain specialties. There are still boys clubs and surgery. There's still um, a big gap between um, pay for men and women. And there's gaps in who are the bosses, right? At the professional level, we have a lot more men um, in universities as well. We have a lot more men at the top and a lot less women. So as they go along in their careers, they're losing that support uh, so we have a lot of women in medical school right now, but how many are going to still be there, you know, in 10 years working the way to the top. So I, I really hope that this book helps us to see how far we've come and, and to, to know that there's still much more work to be done as far as sexism and medicine. Mm-hmm.
0: Wonderful book. Uh, thank you so much, Olivia Kimball for your time today. We, we really appreciate it. Thanks for being so generous with the reading and, um, you know whatever you're working on next please stay in touch well, we'd love to have you back this is just fascinating stuff the the idea of um women and medicine it's a great subject for our audience and i've enjoyed talking to you about it today congratulations on the book women in white coats how the first women doctors changed the world of medicine great job great book
1: Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. My next book is actually not about medicine. It's about physics. It's about four women physicists uh, who were pushed out of Hitler's Germany. So, Whoa. a little bit of a departure, but yeah. Okay. Well, that's a great history.
0: Yeah, <laughs> oh, that sounds wonderful too. So, I'm going to I'm going to just put in uh, our little reservation right now. I'd love to I'd love to have awesome. you back and talk to you again. But uh, my best to you and your family, my best to you and your work. And uh, again, great, great job on this book and an amazing amount of research. But thank you, Olivia Campbell.
1: Thank you. it my pleasure. It's been great to talk to you.
0: My thanks to AARP and Masterworks for sponsoring today's show. Please support our sponsors. Check out the links in our show notes. My thanks as well to Olivia Campbell for her generous reading, her time, and her expertise. Olivia Campbell, of course, is the author of the new book, Women in White Coats, How the First Women Doctors Changed the World of Medicine. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please be well, be safe, and remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week.